Chapter Forty Five of The Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Chapter Forty Five. No tongue, all eyes, be silent. Tempest. Over mountains and through ravines. At nine in the morning our host awakened us. Gentlemen, I trust you have slept well. The enemy has gone, and breakfast waits. I call you early, because I want to take you out of North Carolina into Tennessee, where I will show you a place of refuge infinitely safer than this. For the first time since leaving Salisbury, we traveled by daylight. Our guide led us deviously through fields and up almost perpendicular ascents, where the rarefied air compelled us frequently to stop for breath. We dragged our weary feet up one hill, down another, through ravines of almost impenetrable laurels, swinging across the streams by the snowy, pendant boughs, only to find another appalling height rising before us. Nothing but the hope of freedom enabled us to keep on our feet. Once, when near a public road, our guide suddenly whispered, Hist! Drop to the ground instantly! Lying behind logs, we saw two or three horse teams and sleds pass by, and heard the conversation of the drivers. Our pilot was not agitated, for, like all the Union mountaineers, Danger had been so long a part of his everyday existence that he had no physical nervousness, but it was reported that the guards would be out today, so he was very wary and vigilant. We crossed the road in the Indian mode, walking in single file, each man treading in the footsteps of his immediate predecessor. No casual observer would have suspected that it was the track of more than one man. At 4 p.m. we entered Tennessee, which, like the passage of the New River, seemed another long stride toward home. Approaching a settlement, we went far around through the woods, persuading ourselves that we were unobserved. A mile beyond, we reached a small log house, where our friend was known, and a blooming, matronly woman, with genial eyes, welcomed us. Come in, all. I am very glad to see you. I thought you must be Yankees when I heard of your approach, about half an hour ago. How did you hear? Mistaken for Confederate Guards A good many young men are lying out in this neighborhood, and my son is one of them. He has not slept in the house for two years. He always carries his rifle. At first I was opposed to it, but now I am glad to have him. They may murder him any day, and if they do, I at least want him to kill some of the traitors first. Nobody can approach the settlement, day or night, without being seen by some of these young men, always on the watch. The guard have come in twice, at midnight, as fast as they could ride, but the news traveled before them, and they found the birds flown. When you appeared in sight, the boys took you for rebels. My son and two others, lying behind logs, had their rifles drawn on you 
not more than three hundred yards away. They were very near shooting you, when they discovered that you had no arms, and concluded you must be the right sort of people. In the distance, you look like home guards, part of you dressed as citizens, one in rebel uniform, and two wearing Yankee overcoats. You are unsafe traveling a single mile through this region without sending word beforehand who you are. After dark we were shown to a barn, where we wrapped ourselves in quilts. During the last twenty-four hours we had journeyed twenty-five miles, equal to fifty upon level roads, and our eyelids were very heavy. 18. Wednesday, January 4. This settlement was intensely loyal, and admirably picketed by Union women, children, and bushwhackers. We dined with the wife of a former inmate of Castle Thunder. She told us that Lafayette Jones, whose escape from that prison I have already recorded, remained in the rebel army only a few days, deserting from it to the Union lines, and then coming back to his Tennessee home. A Rebel Guerrilla Killed The rebel guerrilla captain, who originally captured him, was notoriously cruel, had burned houses, murdered Union men, and abused helpless women. He took from Jones two hundred dollars in gold, promising to forward it to his family, but never did so. After reaching home, Jones sent a message to him that he must refund the money at once, or be killed wherever found. Jones finally sought him. As they met, the guerrilla drew a revolver and fired, but without wounding his antagonist. Thereupon Jones shot him dead on his own threshold. The Union people justified and applauded the deed. Jones was afterward captain in a loyal Tennessee regiment. His father had died in a Richmond dungeon, one of his brothers in an Alabama prison, and a second had been hung by the rebels. The woman told us that another guerrilla, peculiarly obnoxious to the loyalists, had disappeared early in November. A few days before we arrived, his bones were found in the woods, with twenty-one bullet holes through his clothing. His watch and money were still undisturbed in his pocket. Vengeance, not avarice, stimulated his destroyers. Meeting a Former Fellow Prisoner here we met another of our Castle Thunder fellow-prisoners, named Guy. The Richmond authorities knew he was a Union bushwhacker, and had strong evidence against him, which would have cost him his life if brought to trial. But he, too, under an assumed name, enlisted in the rebel army, deserted, returned to Tennessee, and resumed his old pursuit as a hunter of men with new zeal and vigor. He and his companion were now armed with sixteen-shooter rifles, revolvers, and bowie knives. Guy's father and brother had both been killed by the guerrillas, and he was bitter and unsparing. If he ever fell into rebel hands again, his life was not worth a rushlight. But he was merry and jocular, as if he had never heard of the King of Terrors. I asked him how he now regarded his Richmond adventures. He replied, I would not take a thousand dollars in gold for the experience I had while in prison, but I would not endure it again for ten thousand. 
Guy and his comrade were supposed to be lying out, which suggested silent and stealthy movements. But on leaving us, they went yelling, singing, and screaming up the valley, whooping like a whole tribe of Indians. Occasionally they fired their rifles, as if their vocal organs were not noisy enough. It was ludicrously strange deportment for hunted fugitives. Guy always goes through the country in that way, said the woman. He is very reckless and fearless. The rebels know it, and give him a wide field. He has killed a good many of them, first and last, and no doubt they will murder him, sooner or later, as they did his father. ALARM ABOUT REBEL CAVALRY At night, just as we were comfortably asleep in the barn, our host awakened us, saying, Five rebel cavalry are reported approaching this neighborhood, with three hundred more behind them, coming over the mountains from North Carolina. I think it is true, but am not certain. I am so well known as a Union man, that, if they do come, they will search my premises thoroughly. There is another barn, much more secluded, a mile farther up the valley, where you will be safer than here, and will compromise nobody if discovered. If they arrive, you shall be informed before they can reach you. Coleridge did not believe in ghosts, because he had seen too many of them. So we were skeptical concerning the rebel cavalry, having heard too much of it. But we went to the other barn, and in its ample straw loft, found a North Carolina refugee, with whom we slept undisturbed. He deemed this place much safer than his home, a gratifying indication to us that the danger was growing small by degrees. 19. Thursday, January 5 This morning the good woman whose barn had sheltered us mended our tattered clothing. Her husband was a soldier in the Union service. I asked her, How do you live and support your family? Very easily, she replied. Last year I did all my own housework, and weaving, spinning, and knitting, and raised over a hundred bushels of corn, with no assistance whatever except from this little girl, eleven years old. The hogs run in the woods during the summer, feeding themselves, so we are in no danger of starvation. Boothby's company, enhanced by the two rebel deserters from Petersburg, and a young conscript, formerly one of our prison guards at Salisbury, here rejoined us. Our entire party, numbering ten, started again at 3 p.m. The road was over Stony Mountain, very rocky and steep. As we halted wearily upon its summit, we overlooked a great waste of mountains, intersected with green valleys of pine and fir, threaded by silver streams. Our guide assured us that, at Carter's Depot, one hundred and ten miles east of Knoxville, we should find Union troops. Soon after dark, to our disappointment and indignation, he declared that he must turn back without a moment's delay. His long-deferred explanation that the young wife, whom he had left at his lonely log-house, was about to endure, the pleasing punishment which women bear, mollified our wrath, and we bade him good-bye. A STANCH OLD UNIONIST After dark we found our way, deviously, around several dwellings, to the house of an old Union man, with his wife and three bouncing daughters, 
he heartily welcomed us. I am very glad to see you. I have been looking for you these two hours. Why did you expect us? We learned yesterday that there were ten Yankees, one in red breeches and a rebel uniform, over the mountains. Girls, make a fire in the kitchen and get supper for these gentlemen. While we discussed the meal and a great bucket of rosy apples before the roaring fire, our host, silver-haired, deep-chested, brawny-limbed, a splendid specimen of physical manhood, poured out his heart. He was devoted to the Union with a zeal, passing the love of women. How intensely he hated the rebels! How his eyes flashed and dilated as he talked of the old flag! How perfect his faith, that he should live to see it again waving triumphantly on his native mountains! One of his sons had died fighting for his country, and two others were still in the Union army. THE MOST DANGEROUS POINT The old gentleman piloted us through the deep woods for three miles to a friendly house. We were now near a rendezvous of rebel guerrillas, reported to be without conscience and without mercy. Their settlement was known through that whole region as Little Richmond. We must pass within a quarter of a mile of them. It was feared they might have pickets out, and the point was deemed more dangerous than any since leaving Salisbury. Our new friend, though an invalid, promptly rose from his bed to guide us through the danger. His wife greeted us cordially, but was extremely apprehensive, darting to and from the door, and in conversation suddenly pausing to listen. When we started, she said, taking both my hands in hers, May God prosper you, and carry you safely through to those you love but you must be very cautious. Less than six weeks ago, my two brothers started for the north by the same route, and when they reached Crab Orchard, the rebel guerrillas captured them and murdered them in cold blood. After leading us two miles, the guide stopped, and when all came up he whispered, We are approaching the worst place. Let no man speak a word. Step lightly as possible, while I keep as far ahead as you can see me. If you hear any noise, dart out of sight at once. Should I be discovered with you, it would be certain death to me. If found alone, I can tell some story about sickness in my family. We crept softly behind him for two miles. Then, leading us through a rocky pasture into the road, he said, Thank God, I have brought another party of the right sort of people past little Richmond in safety. My health is broken, and I shall not live long, but it is a great consolation to know that I have been able to help some men who love the Union made by our fathers. Directing us to a staunch Unionist, a few miles beyond, he returned home. At three in the morning we reached our destination. Davis and Boothby did pioneer duty, going forward to the house, where they were received by a clamor of dogs, which made the valleys ring. After a whispered conference with the host, they returned and said, There is a rebel traveler spending the night here. We are to stay in the barn until morning, when he will be gone. THE ALL-DEVOURING VERMIN We burrowed in the warm haymow, and vainly essayed to sleep. The all-devouring vermin by this time swarmed upon us, poisoning our blood, and stimulating every nerve, 
as we tossed wearily until long after daylight. 20. Friday, January 6. At nine o'clock this morning, our host came to the hayloft and awoke us. My troublesome guest is gone. Walk down to breakfast. He was educated, intelligent, and had been a leader among the conservative, or union people, until compelled to acquiesce, nominally, in the war. His house and family were pleasant. But while we now began to approach civilization, the Union line steadily receded. He informed us that we would find no loyal troops east of Jonesboro, ninety-eight miles from Knoxville, and probably none east of Greenville, seventy-four miles from Knoxville. But, said he, you are out of the woods for the present. You are on the border of the largest Union settlement in all the rebel states. You may walk for twenty-four miles by daylight on the public road. Look out for strangers, home guards, or rebel guerrillas, but you will find every man, woman, and child who lives along the route a staunch and faithful friend. With light hearts we started down the valley. It seemed strange to travel the public road by daylight, visit houses openly, and look people in the face. Our way was on the right bank of the Watuga, a broad, flashing stream, walled in by abrupt cliffs, covered with pines and hemlocks. A woman on horseback, with her little son on foot, accompanied us for several miles, saying, If you travel alone, you are in danger of being shot for rebel guerrillas. More Union Soldiers In the evening, a Union man rode us across the stream. On the left bank our eyes were gladdened by three of our boys in blue, United States soldiers at home on furlough. Seeing us in the distance, they leveled their rifles, but soon discovered that we were not foes. Our host for the night beguiled the evening hours with stories of the war, and again we enjoyed the luxury of beds. 21. Saturday, January 7. A Well-Fortified Refuge a friend piloted us eight miles over the rough, snowy mountains, avoiding public roads. In the afternoon, we found shelter at a white frame house, nestling among the mountains, and fronted by a natural lawn, dotted with firs. Here, for the first time, we were entirely safe. Any possible rebel raid must come from the south side of the river. The house was on the north bank of the stream, which was too much swollen for fording, the only canoe within five miles was fastened on our shore. Thus fortified on front, flank, and rear, we took our ease in the pleasant, homelike farmhouse. Near the dwelling was a great spring of rare beauty. Within an area of twelve feet, a dozen streams, larger than one's arm, came gushing and boiling up through snow-white sand, by the aid of a great fire and an enormous iron kettle. We boiled all our clothing, and at last vanquished the troublesome enemies which, brought from the prison, had so long disturbed our peace. Then, bathing in the icy waters, we came out renewed, like the Syrian leper, and, in soft, clean beds, enjoyed the sweet sleep of childhood. 22. Sunday, January 8. A new guide took us eight miles to a log barn in the woods. After dining among, 
but not upon the husks we started again an old lady of sixty guiding us through the woods toward her house age had not withered her nor custom staled for she walked at a pace which made it difficult to keep in sight of her at dark in the deep pines behind her lonely dwelling we kindled a fire supped and with fifteen or twenty companions who had joined us so noiselessly that they seemed to spring from earth we started on end of chapter forty five recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida